Action series of podcasts is proudly supported by Arc Maths. That's Arc with a C. Now, over the course of these nine episodes, you'll be hearing about cutting edge research and its application to the classroom. And that is exactly what Arc Maths is all about. The ArcMaths app makes use of research into retrieval, testing, spacing and interleaving to design a personalised practice programme for each of your students that stops them forgetting the things they once knew. It strengthens their recall of core math skills and knowledge and keeps students systematically practising previous topics so you can teach new ones. There's no teaching element to it, it's just designed to support your teaching through regular recapping. On top of this, there is a brilliant handwriting recognition tool that can even cope with my dodgy scribbles and you can annotate the pictures and write on the working out screen. Unsurprisingly, the app has been shortlisted for Educational App of the Year at the 2021 BET Awards. Teachers can have a go with the ArcMaths app for free if they get in contact and mention the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. It's currently available for iPads, but phone and other tablet versions will be available from September. So just drop them an email at hello at arceducation.co.uk or contact them via the website. And there's links to both of those things in the show notes. And remember, that's Arc with a C, not a K. So... Welcome to the season finale of season two of my Research in Action mini-series, where I interview researchers from Loughborough University's Centre for Mathematical Cognition about their chosen areas of interest and the implication for teachers in the classroom. And I try my very best, and I think we can all agree I've failed throughout this series, not to come across completely out of my depth. So what have we got lined up for this season finale? So uh, regular listeners may remember that the season finale from season one of Research in Action featured Dave Hewitt. So I thought it was only good and proper to uh, bring in Dave's partner in crime uh, in writing, certainly, of the wonderful practicing mathematics book, Tom Franken. So a bit of background about Tom. Tom's role in the centre is to work to integrate basic research, academic scholarship and practical experience. Tom also teaches on the mathematics PGCE. He completed his mathematics degree at the University of Birmingham, where he stayed to undertake teacher education in secondary mathematics. Tom taught mathematics in schools and worked for many years as a head of mathematics and head of faculty, winning the prestigious TES Award for Maths Team of the Year in 2015. He contributed lesson materials for the EEF-funded project on best practice in mixed attainment teaching. This work was awarded the 2016 BCFBER. A Routledge Curriculum Journal Prize. Tom was previously a lecturer in secondary mathematics education at the University of Birmingham. He's interested in all aspects of educational research, but in particular, equitable approaches to teaching mathematics and the development of expertise. Tom is currently conducting PhD research into the nature of practicing in mathematics. Now, regular listeners of the show will know that this is Tom's second appearance on the podcast. The last time he was on, we discussed supporting novice teachers and planning lessons, so that's definitely worth checking out. 
The other podcast episode that's relevant here is my conversation with Helen Hindle from back in 2018. Flipping heck, I've been going a long time on this show. About teaching mixed attainment students. Now that proved to be one of the most popular episodes I've ever done. And it's something of a prequel to what Tom and I discussed today. So you might want to check that out. But this episode should work as a standalone. Because the conversation with Tom, uh, very much the focus is on two related things, teaching mixed attainment classes and the tasks and activities that support this. Now, mixed attainment teaching has always been of great interest to teachers, myself included, but particularly in the current climate where many secondary school teachers might just be gearing up for their first ever year of mixed attainment teaching due to their new year seven students having no SATs data from primary school that might usually be used to allocate students into SETs. Mixed attainment teaching is an area I have very little experience in, one that I feel I would definitely struggle to do effectively and also one that I have got a ton of questions about. Fortunately, Tom is brilliant at answering them. So without further ado, let's get cracking and let's bring this research and action series to a close. As ever, I will see you on the other side. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome back Mr. Tom Frankham to the show. This is the long-awaited part two. We've kept the we kept the crowd waiting for this one. How are you, Tom? I'm not too bad, thank you. Good, good, good. Right. So um, we left people on a bit of a cliffhanger last time because we promised we were going to be talking about loads of different things, and we only got around to talking about one of them really, which was working with beginning teachers. And then if you remember, you dropped that bombshell on me towards the end that you plan your lessons on Excel, which still blows, still absolutely blows my mind. Uh, but what we're going to be talking about today, first off, is uh, teaching mixed attainment. Now, I've been very vocal on the podcast that I'm clueless on this. I have very, very little experience. Uh, that's why I had Helen Hindle on a few years ago, and that was one of the most popular episodes we've ever done. Some really sound advice on teaching mixed attainment that... Yeah, again, blew my mind the way Helen talked about her classroom. But I know you've a lot of experience with this, Tom. And I know, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but would it be fair to say you're an advocate of, of mixed attainment teaching? I guess that'd be a good yeah, place to start, fair. really. So, yeah, it's, it, and why is that, Tom? Is it something you just believe in from a kind of social aspect or is there, is there more to it? Well, I suppose, um, yeah, I mean, this is... This goes back really to when I was a head of department in a school um, and I was thinking about, um, like I went into a school that had sets and so one of the things that I did was change from having sets in everything. So one of the things that we had, for example, was um, like six groups in a year group, but then four different schemes of work for those for yes. those six groups. So you had like no one could ever talk about um, what they were doing in their maths lessons and I just became I suppose increasingly concerned that pupils were being kind of limited by the group that they were placed in um, and you had teachers that maybe looked forward to teaching some groups and then dreaded teaching other groups um, teachers who felt they had to kind of like teach to the test um, so it was about kind of pupils but it was also about what I was really interested in it is the thing that I maybe could affect, which is what teachers were doing, which like only indirectly affects what, what pupils are doing. Um, pupils that thought maths was just only about remembering the right method. Um, pupils that thought that they should never make any mistakes, that their books should always be like really neat and tidy. Um, and just like too many pupils that didn't enjoy maths 
and that included i suppose like lots of pupils who were doing pretty well in maths so you had all these pupils that were doing well but they didn't like maths and they didn't feel like they understood it and those were the kind of things that kept me kept me up at night i suppose um and that was part of the how we ended up kind of transitioning to having mixed entertainment groups um just just on that tom um just to give a bit of background here so we're gonna we're gonna fuse together talking about mixed attainment and running a department before you introduce mixed attainment teaching to your department had you had experience of it just from a kind of regular teacher perspective not also somebody who's leading a department introducing it what, what was your background before these changes yeah no 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 experience of that at all <laughs> right. but i just um like one of the things that i had a sense of was that um, I mean, and we could get into this a bit more, but there are various kind of like disadvantages of ability grouping and things like that. So there are some things that I'd come to through reading about um, things like that. So I mentioned before that I had got quite into reading educational research fairly early on, I suppose. Uh, and I was trying to, because I suppose like you, I was trying to kind of like find the way, find out how you're supposed to be doing this. I assumed when I started that people would have already cracked this. And I would just go in and do it. Um, but yeah, that wasn't really the case. And you had to go around and find kind of find your own way to do this. So I didn't have any experience of, um, teaching mixed groups other than the kind of trite thing of saying like all groups are mixed and that kind of thing. yes um yeah so we we ended up and but there were like various other things that i wanted to change at the same time so i think um yeah i mean i th- i think if i was encouraging other people to to do it i would do it gradually so because that's what i tried to do try and try and do that gradually so we just changed to year seven initially um and not everyone was keen on that idea um so i had maybe like two or three other teachers who were up for up for trying to teach mixed entertainment so we had um we kind of had like two sort of top sets and a mixed up middle um mixed middle and then like a support group at the bottom yes um and then what happened really was uh, at the end of that year, someone someone who hadn't been that keen had said, oh, now the, who, who'd been teaching one of the, the higher groups had been basically said, oh, they're so mixed, they might as well all be mixed. And I was like, okay, let's mix them all. <laughs> um, and, and I suppose what happened alongside that is I wanted to introduce a new kind of scheme of work because we had... Yeah, I mean, I suppose this will be familiar to lots of people, but we had the sort of scheme of work. And I made, I did make this scheme of work. Because when I started at the school, I was like second in department and there was no scheme of work. So like my big job was make a scheme of work. So I made a scheme of work the way that I'd seen other people make a scheme of work before, which was get the kind of textbook scheme that we used and... um and like put it into an order and we had a front page overview of all of the the topics of what to teach when um and then i i did i made it so you could click anything um and it would take you to a, a lesson plan on that nice. thing um lesson ideas though so there was stuff like that came from the um came as part of the materials 
and literally no one ever clicked any of those links <laughs> yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah. Right? Everyone just tore off the front sheet. So really yeah. what I wanted was, I was just thinking, oh, what I'll do is I'll make it so there's, there's better stuff on the front sheet that everyone looks at. That, that was one of the drivers actually early on. Um, I take it on Excel, by the way, here. I mean, that goes without question, does it? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so, and I guess one of the things that I wanted to do was spend longer on topics. So we ended up moving to something where we covered kind of like six broad topics in the year. So broadly like one per half term. And this is still just year seven. Is that is that right that you focus Well, on it started year? off in year seven, but then the next year we did seven and eight, right. and the next year we did seven, eight, nine, and then all the way up to year 11. Um, and I, the other thing I suppose was what we wanted to do um, was really try and develop people as mathematicians. So, uh, I went to a talk at um, the Birmingham branch of the ATM, um, which was Alf Coles, and he was talking about, he'd been teaching mixed attainment groups, and he was talking about uh, the way they kind of framed it was the goal isn't about learning maths, but about becoming a mathematician. And for me, that was really helpful in in thinking about like what you want the mathematical experience of the kids mm. in school to be like. Um, and And all the other stuff that, that we'd kind of been doing before like it's just a subtle tweak you could do kind of some of the things are, are, are quite similar but with the focus on becoming a mathematician so by that I mean things like um, thinking for yourself being organized systematic uh, opportunities to make conjectures um, noticing things recording what you're noticing being sure about things testing convincing explaining your ideas and that kind of thing um, and like having an overall view that that's what we wanted to develop that's one what we wanted to talk about with kids and that's what we were trying to develop all the time was develop them mathematically um, so yeah that changed to a kind of working in depth on topics um, covering six broad topics over the course of the year but also with a bit of space and time for interesting diversions um, and also pupils getting to ask some of their own questions and work on their own maths ideas. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how much more to say on that before. <laughs> so I've got, got a few questions spring to mind already here, Tom. I, I'll tell you what I think would be, be quite useful here. Um, before, I, I definitely want to dive into the practicalities of this because this is where I've struggled. Actually, I cannot picture making this work. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go big into that uh, in, a few min- in a few minutes. But just before then, you mentioned before that you had reasons for wanting to move away from from setted uh, from setted classes, I wonder if you just go over some of those reasons. And I'm also interested in you referring to kind of evidence on this because my limited understanding that that often gets banded around is that uh, setted is good for the higher attaining students, uh, marginally better, but really bad, particularly for the lower attaining. That's what I often hear. I wonder if you though could summarise your understanding of the research and also your reasons for wanting to move away from SETID, if that's okay. Yeah, okay. Um, but though, what you have to do is be kind of picky with me because some, if you're not <laughs> sure about whether I'm, because sometimes I might be saying this is my opinion about okay. this and sometimes I might be saying this is what the research suggests. All right. All and right. like some of the, so a lot of those things are kind of tied together for me. So okay. I suppose the first thing 
that's worth saying is you have this kind of like the notion of ability as a fixed thing. So if you look mm. at the literature around this, um, often even if you use the word ability in the title of your paper, there's some kind of disclaimer in there where people are saying, um, we don't like think of this as being mixed ability teaching, but mixed attainment, because the idea of ability is kind of creating this this idea that ability is something that's fixed and something mm. that's measurable. Um, so there are various types of ways that you can group students. So you have like mixed attainment or mixed ability where classes just contain a range of attainment levels. Streaming, which I think is worth mentioning because generally in the literature, people talk about streaming is um, is when you're in the same ability groups for all yes. lessons. Yeah. So um, you might be set by your English scores mm. and then you're in that group for everything. Yeah. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning because sometimes people use that when they actually mean something like banding, where you have like a top band, which is quite mixed, a middle uh, band, and yes. a, a, or you have higher and foundation. Like yeah, yeah. that isn't the way that the word streaming is traditionally used. Um, yeah, streaming is the worst thing that it you is can do, like, probably. What is the thinking? That is the worst of all the worlds, that, right? It, well, it is, though. I mean, it's not to say that you know, it's the worst for everyone all of the time. And some kind of quite high profile schools in UK use streaming as their kind of grouping practice. It's not something that I would advocate because of the the way that it impacts on, um, like one of the issues about grouping, for example, is the way it impacts on students' self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're, if you're in... Um, the amount of setting that you experience um, impacts on the self-confidence. So even if you're in like the top set for um, English, say, but a lower set for maths, your overall general confidence at school is worse as a result. Of, and is, uh, this, is this your opinion or is this this <laughs> This is, so that is a, um, from, from the research. So like the best, the kind of big recent studies are right of um, UCL. So like Jeremy Hodgin, Becky Francis, Becky Taylor, and their um, their group have looked at this big study of almost ten thousand students, like loads of schools, on kind of like what the best practice in in grouping is like. And actually, I worked a bit on the um, the teacher materials um, as I. I uh, yeah, I was on the the expert panel, and I think it's not because like I'm particularly amazing at teaching mixed attainment, but just because at the time um, there just weren't many schools that were teaching mixed attainment beyond year seven. There are far mm. more now, but I think they could only find like four schools that were doing that. Yeah. Um, and though I remember Jeremy saying there might be as many as six or something like that. <laughs> right, um, okay. So yeah, there's a mixability streaming and setting is where you're allocated to kind of ability groups per subject. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's problematic. It's often the way you do that grouping has problems, but maybe I'll come come on to that in a second because I suppose the issues are around, I think of some of the issues as being around the underlying assumptions that pupils have for different abilities that those abilities 
um, can be known or measured uh, that pupils would learn best with other people of similar ability. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that you might damage the self-concept of, of low attainers by putting them in a group with high attainers. And, and also that, that teaching sets is easier. And I would challenge all of those things. I think everyone assumes, like, for example, that teaching sets is easier. But I would definitely argue that whilst teaching, I think teaching is tricky, but I think there are advantages in the long term to teaching mixed attainment, um, which maybe I could come on to. I mean, but it's, I would, it's, worth, yeah. it's worth saying at this point, Tom, and I'll be, I'll put my uh, kind of cards on the table. Here. I, I've got all those things you've said, I, I think, I think at this moment in time, I just just listening to, to Helen describe the lesson she described on sequences, where you've got one kid who's working on kind of basic number stuff and another child is thinking about nth term of quadratics. My mind was being blown. I, I cannot comprehend how, how to teach that. And, and also like the, I, I can sense the frustration of higher attaining students being slowed down. I can sense the frustration of lower attaining students feeling they're being left behind. All this kind of stuff, I've got to be honest, I, I feel, but I don't want to be fixed in that way. I, I, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm definitely open, but I just want to put my cards on the table that that I certainly have those assumptions. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I think is like a myth about mixed attainment is that there's a particular way of teaching attached mm. to it. Mm, um, yes. So, for, for example, I guess if you're in Scandinavia, like every person does this every day, every teacher mm. does this every day, it's actually illegal to set for any fixed yeah, period of time so. in some countries. Crazy. So like normal, <laughs> for example. Um, so that kind of makes sense. But like every one of those teachers is not teaching um, in the same way. Every one of those is not teaching in the way that Helen teaches. I don't think the way that you teach um, – should be that influenced by the kind the way that you've grouped the pupils that's interesting Mm, that's it because again just just on that just thinking of my own unconscious bias here i would very much expect if it was setted i could imagine two teachers teaching that set completely differently whether it's direct instruction inquiry or so on but i have a very much in my head a notion of what mixed attainment teaching has to look like kind of low barrier high ceiling tasks and so on and so forth so that's interesting that you say that you could you it doesn't dictate the way that you teach yeah i mean i think low barrier high ceiling like seems like quite a good idea um for all the time like if you're giving people mm. i don't know what's the opposite high <laughs> high barrier low ceiling like they're my favorite <laughs> <laughs> so i think that's probably not what you're going for like really hard to get into and goes nowhere sure. um, <laughs> so i think there were kind of like rules of thumb about that sort of thing but but i think that would be fine for kind of however you're teaching mm. um that you want it to be accessible in some sense for everyone who's there sure um could i kind of give you an example um again i i i, I don't want to interrupt and i'm just I'm, i really i really wanted to, to ask you this about it so you know how like I, i've got a very kind of a very kind of set in my ways model of how I teach these days that's, that's changed over the years, but it's been pretty rigid for the last two or three years. And, and that is, I'm a big believer in worked examples and I'm a big believer in modeling in a certain way. And I'll do my silent teacher and narration and your turn and so on. And 
I just couldn't imagine doing that in a mixed attainment class. Like I, I couldn't imagine. It's, it's the it's knowing where to pitch things when I'm doing that initial explanation that I I can't figure out how to how to get right. Whereas I think I, if I was teaching mixed attainment, I see myself almost kind of being task led. So like everyone gets the same task and I wander around the room kind of helping out and, and pitching my instruction. I couldn't imagine doing that whole class teaching, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I mean, how would you pitch it if you're teaching, I don't know, seven, set four or something? <laughs> so what, what I would do, I'd, I'd ask my diagnostic questions to get a bit of a sense of kind of prior knowledge and so on and address any misconceptions there. And then I think I'd just be, I just kind of go in with with the kind of works example that I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think at year seven I can kind of see it working a bit better, but when the kids get older and I can imagine that their achievement levels kind of widen a bit, that's I think that's where I where I struggle. Like say I'm teaching something like, I don't know, factorizing quadratics or something. I could imagine a big gulf in in students kind of capabilities with that and i don't i don't know where to start again i'm just trying to be honest here i, I can't picture that yeah. starting point if that makes sense um well i mean i think if you wanted to you could start in the same way i think you'd i think if you change i mean one of the issues around um one of the issues around this is is kind of like what what should the default position be like, should the default position be mixed attainment or should the mm -hmm. default position be setting? Mm -hmm. So, like, what I say often about um, often about this is that um, setting doesn't seem to be an effective strategy for raising attainment. It's common. It's really common in the UK. It's it's more common in the UK than it is in any other in any in any other country, um, you have more setting within class and more setting between classes. But that is in a kind of context where we have a more comprehensive kind of school system. Like we mm. don't put people yeah. into different schools in the same way. I mean, we do that a bit. Um, but it's not an effective strategy for raising attainment. So I guess one of the things that people often um, talk about is what you mentioned about the small positive effects for higher attainers. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes, you, and and the the literature is kind of mixed on this. And say, so sometimes you find studies that get small positive effects for higher mm -hmm. attainers. Sometimes you get um, an essentially a zero effect, so it makes no difference. And there are some studies which find a stronger effect for higher attainers, so so they're better off in the mixed yeah. groups. Yeah. Um, than they would have been otherwise and that's because of things like in a mixed group um like it forces the teachers to differentiate whereas you know people people often worry about mixed groups people teach into the middle that tends to happen more in sets because you think mm. they're all this one ability um, yeah, okay. so dylan yeah. williams done some stuff about that um but where do these kind of when you do get little differences um, where do they come from? They're often at the expense of the lower attainers. Um, so there's kind, of, there's kind of evidence of that. Um, and I think one of the things that that we ought to think about there is if 
So overall, it seems like the effect of setting as a as a raising attainment strategy is essentially zero. Like it doesn't really help. And sometimes you get some small positive gains, but you're kind of like a, a reverse Robin Hood. You're robbing from <laughs> you're robbing from the poor to give to the rich kind of thing. And that essentially is 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 often how that works. You get kind of privileged students in the top sets, mm. like white students, middle class students, and you're getting more disadvantaged students are overrepresented in lower sets and things like that. Um, could, could I just on that, Tom, and again, apologies for, for, for interrupting. What about, I'm just thinking, again, I, I can only talk anecdotally. You know far more about the research, obviously, than I will. But what about your kind of, you know, your bottom set, your lowest achieving students? It just seems to me, kind of common sense that they'll be best in a relatively small group with a really experienced teacher who can kind of give them more in kind of individual time and attention than they I just imagine them being lost in a class of 25 when you've got some real high flyers in there who also need attention is it it seems to me almost better for the lowest attaining students to be set or is that not right yeah, it's kind of the opposite to what you're saying. <laughs> um, what I like it, to it. <laughs> it, it, it. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, lots of things uh, are counterintuitive. Like one yeah. of the things that we think about how, um, you know, like cla- reducing class size doesn't always work. It's yeah, not always positive. But so, yeah. and, and that's partly because teachers don't teach differently when they teach a smaller group. So you think everyone will get a bit more time, but mm. they don't because teachers yeah. don't change the way they teach. Um, and yeah, it seems sensible to, to say uh, initially to go, okay, what we'll do is we'll put all these all these kids um, that have been disadvantaged by the school system for yeah. some reason together and are performing at a lower rate than others. And we'll put them together. Um, and you put them with a really good teacher. We don't do that, do we? We no, don't we tend don't. to. No, we tend to. Um, and actually the, the UCL study had like, I had quite compelling evidence that you that you tend to get better teachers, kind of um, better quality teachers, more experienced teachers, um, more subject specialists um, put into the top groups, yeah, and kind I of and, and and almost actually some so there's some literature about kind of like being rewarded with given, yeah. given the top groups. Yep. Um, but the other thing is, so they're not getting these best teachers. So maybe you could you could do that. Maybe you could um, put the better teachers in there. But how hard a job are you making it for that teacher? So I put Craig in, the super teacher. And, <laughs> and what I do is you take all of the students in your school who have the most challenging um, and diverse needs. Mm, yep, yep. And put them all together, right? They get, it turns out that they tend to get more time and attention. Yeah. Um, if you spread them out, if you've got six groups and you've got kind of because because the other thing that people I've heard people say is, oh, I've got some kids that can't number bond to 10. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, you don't have like 150 of those in a year. You might have yeah. like five yeah. or something. So it's better to spread them out um, amongst amongst other teachers where they can get kind of a bit more time and attention. Um yeah, because if you put if you put together all these kids just because they've scored low, <laughs> I mean, it's one of the reasons why teaching top sets is easier. I think is is a thing about um, you know how if you do um, 
if you do studies on the top set, you get you get better results if you just study the top set. Um, if you do a trial and you just study the top set, you get a better effect size, for example, okay. uh, than if you look at the whole range. And it's because there's less variation. Right. And like a top group in some ways might be easier to teach because whenever you teach the thing that you want to teach, um, they've probably got the prerequisites for that sorted. Yep. Yep. Whereas if you get, as you go lower down this kind of score, yeah. Um, say everyone gets 20% on the test, they've probably all got a different 20 or whatever. Yes, so the yes, prerequisites yes. are all different. So yes. whenever you're teaching this, um, a kind of like bottom group, they've got these really diverse needs. So they don't all, it's not like they all have the same needs at the oh, same okay. time that makes yeah, it easy yeah. to address by putting them yeah. in, in, a, in a lower group. Um, yeah, so I think... It just compounds a problem and, you know, increases the risk of things like this is not for me and the um, damaging their self-concept and them feeling like I'm not good at maths. I'm not, I'm not a mathematician. I'll never be good at maths. What's the point in trying? Because they've got kind of like these different issues. So I think I think it's probably kind of like the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Always good to hear. Always good to hear. Well, just before we get on to trying to make mixed attainment teaching work, and we'll talk about tasks and so on, just a couple of other points. One just on the confidence. And again, I, I can only be open and honest here, Tom, and talk about what my instinct says. Again, my instinct says that the, the self-esteem and confidence, that those, I don't know the best way to say this. So I'll muddle my words up here, but it's, Surely it's quite bad for students' self-confidence whenever they're not achieving as much as kind of the rest of the classes when they're in their mixed attainment groups. Like they're like I'm a great believer that success is motivating, and sure you can have you can have elements of success and so on. But when you're sat next to somebody who's, who's you know onto worksheet three or has absolutely nailed this task and so on, you're still struggling with the basics. Yeah, I so I'm not being good for the self-esteem. Yeah, so I think part of that is about like reframing how you define success. Yeah, okay. Um, because so so for me, one of the things that I'm really interested in is developing mathematicians. So um, asking questions, being organised, all of those kinds of things. But it, and all of those are kind of markers of success. So if there's more ways to be successful, more people mm. can be successful. Mm, like yes. a problem that you may have if, if it's only about kind of. Um, remembering the right method or doing things quickly only one person can be the quickest yeah sure right sure. so if that's the thing that i value and you communicate what you value you know through your teaching um if that's the thing that i value yeah not everyone is going to be successful all of the time so but if i just reframe slightly um reframe this slightly like more people can feel successful just by kind of redefining what what success is yeah, that's good. I'll give you that one. That makes a lot of sense, right? Let, let me ask you. Let me ask you this then, before we dive into this. What, what's the dream for you, Tom? If you um, if you could, if if you're head of department in a school or whatever, and we're going to talk specifically about how you help prepare and train your teachers for this, but just in terms of the kids themselves, is it mixed attainment from year seven to eleven? Or is it even within a year group like year seven, is there kind of what some people will call a nurture group and a top set and a mixed all in between? Or what, what, what's, what's the dream? What do you believe is the most effective? Well, I mean, the, the question of it, 
Yeah, I don't know if effective is the right question because I think because <laughs> I mean one of the things that I said earlier is about like this isn't a good the, the way you group students um, or ability grouping isn't an effective strategy for race entertainment. Um, so really, we have to think about like what is what are we trying to get out of it? Yeah. Like what are the goals? Um, so often, like, and I think if you're reading the the literature on this. I mean, I guess people often want um, from research the answer yeah, yeah, yeah. to like is, should we do mixed attainment yeah, or should exactly. we do ability grouping? Correct. Um, and I get that, but maybe it's not the kind of question that research can answer because it's about values. Like, mm-hmm. do you want, I don't know, like I have, I sometimes think about like things like school mottos, like do you have a, sc- a school model that, a school, a school motto like um, success for some or do you have like success for all mm. and like what do you care about because and 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 often I think when you read research um, it's worth thinking about where where the people doing that research are coming from like what yes. they're yes. what they're thinking about so often they're thinking about kind of social justice yeah. so I, I mentioned the thing about um how we allocate people to groups or how we misallocate people to groups. Um, so kind of in, in the literature, you find that most people um, are set on the basis of a single test. So you just do one test. So it used to be at, for secondary school, you did the key stage two yeah. test in primary. And then that was how you did your groups. But we know there are other things that creep in like behavior and ethnicity and socioeconomic status. Yes. Um, and you won't be surprised to know that math set more than other subjects. Um, about 90% of secondary school students are in sets for maths. It's more like about 50 for English. Um, but there's some kind of, so actually the, um, in the UCL grouping study, they, did, they were doing a trial. Um, so they had people in the control group and people in the trial group. So they're trying to kind of... Um, they're trying to go, oh, if you just set on attainment, what does that look like? But one of the interesting things was what, what they did with the um, with the control group is they could analyze um, where they should be, what sets students should be placed in if they're just set on attainment and what sets they actually end up in. And what you find is like black students are two and a half times more likely to be in a lower set than wow. their attainment would warrant. Uh, Asian students are about one and a half times more likely and girls are about one and a half times more likely to be in a lower set than their Jeez. attainment would warrant. So, and and, it, and it's interesting because these are, these are all schools who've signed up be, for this study because they really care about um, equity. So they're yes, trying to yes. do, they're trying to be a kind of equitable, but this unconscious bias is creeping in around how students are grouped um and that ends up mattering quite a lot like if if you put if you have students with the same level of of attainment and you put someone in the top set they'll do significantly better than Mm. the person with the same level of attainment that you put into the middle group and the person that you put into the bottom group will be will do significantly worse Mm. and actually it's almost impossible whenever you set people um 
if you even if you set on the basis of some kind of like really reliable test like half the students are going to be in the kind of wrong group Mm. um so it's hugely problematic and i think it's problematic because of what matters is how how teachers think i think is the key thing teachers beliefs teachers beliefs about ability and like one that there's one nice quote i actually forget this quote but in the literature for like where it comes from but if, if teachers don't believe in improvement they don't try and create it so okay. and you the kind of thing that you might have heard in the staff room when people go oh yeah, i could do that in your group but you couldn't do that in my group yeah, yeah, and yeah, they don't yeah. get access to the whole curriculum and all yeah. of those kinds of things um yeah so i think i think it can be problematic i I have no idea what your question was. <laughs> it was a good answer, maybe to a different question though. But yeah. I was interested in what what the dream is. What, what how would you how would you arrange your groupings, Tom? Would because um, I asked for what the most effective way would be, and you weren't happy with effective. But what uh, would yeah. you, how how would you how would you group? Let's start with year seven. Would it be mixed in every class? So effective for what? <laughs> well, I'm going to pick you up on this actually because you said to me before that there's there's no evidence that um, sets if you set students it leads to an increase in academic achievement. So if we use academic achievement, well, that's not ben- quite true. I mean, there is some evidence <laughs> that's like that, but I would say overall the effect of grouping um, is it's not an effective strategy for race and attainment. So, like, I could show you show you a study where it doesn't race yeah. attainment, and you could point to one where it does. And I assume it's the same with mixed attainment then. Is that right? That, that there isn't strong evidence either way? that it. Yeah, well, as far as we know, I mean, this is kind of like an old literature and a lot of the a lot of the things that we know are based on like the US, which is a slightly yeah, different context. Yeah. So I think some of this stuff uh, that Jeremy's doing is trying to like put that, put that balance right. Um, but yeah, we we don't have loads of really good data on maybe the answers to the kinds of questions that people really want. But I don't. Again, I don't. I don't know if it can answer um, the questions that we really want. Okay. Well, let's say. Let, let's honestly. Let's just say you you're in charge. You you can you can have whatever aim you want for this. How how would you organise your your groupings in year, in year seven? Would is there, what I'm going to try to get at? Is there an advantage to having a top? single top sets is there an advantage to having a nurture group or is it just mix everything up well what in your experience okay um yeah so i know those are kind of fairly common amongst people who go for a more mixed yes. thing yes. so for a more yes. mixing than a strict setting um yeah and and I guess part of that might depend on your context. So like the level of experience of your staff and yep. like um, their preferences, their beliefs around teaching. Um, but I think what might be tricky if you have like a nurture group is how do they get reintegrated? And yeah. do you end up yeah, with yeah. the same issues that they get this kind of like lower level curriculum yes. offer and they don't uh, lower level work and boring, repetitive things yeah. like um you know babying so so actually in the in the interview stuff they often talk about students who are take, placed in lower groups often talk about like babying yeah baby work and things like that. so do they get do they get that and how do they get reintegrated and what good examples do they see of people being successful and yes. knowing what it looks like to be yes. successful um so 
maybe worry about that. I think if you look at um, like having one top group, maybe it's practical to do that. Um, there, yeah, as far as I can, as far as I know, there's some evidence that having like, you know, you might have pull out support groups. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's a good idea to do that for if you have kids say that don't have times tables yeah. or something like that something that's something that's really important you might have a, a few of those but you know if you have a lot of those you might have a whole school uh, policy or a department policy on it if you have a handful of those um it's worth doing something with those um so i maybe would pull them out of you know assemblies or form time or, so, yes. or something like that and do some do some extra work with them um and i think a similar thing can work for um, for kind of like the people who are doing really well and who are interested in doing really well um, to have kind of additional additional support. So there is some evidence for like pull out classes. So one of the things that we used to do um, is, you know, level two further maths. Yeah, big fun. Actually, that. we did the kind of foundational stuff for all of that <coughs> with everyone up to about year. 10 but then we had extra lessons which people could opt into yeah. for if they wanted to go in and take the exam and i think um in an so you did say an ideal world so if it was an ideal world i'd have kind of a core maths thing um that everyone does which is all mixed and then you have you could take maths as an option you know like when you pick your gcse options you could take maths as an option um and some people might be getting additional support there and some people might go into groups where they get additional extension or something like that and that might be able to combine some of the the best of both worlds because the, the pull-out classes can be effective um for like the highest attainers and if um if we move up the school and we assume people are taking um gcses would you would you have like higher classes and foundation classes or is it does, does it make sense to to, se- to separate that or not yeah not everyone does that but i think it makes sense to have some separation at some point when you're preparing for exams personally i think um I want to maybe make those decisions as late as possible. Um, But one of the things that you can do if it's a mixed group, so, you know, in my experience of doing it, sometimes we've done that regrouping into foundation and higher at um, the start of year 11. Sometimes we've done it at Christmas or uh, at February of Mm -hmm. year 11. So, but you can make those decisions based on your cohort. And, and if you have kind of, um, one of the difficulties of grouping, I think, is I mentioned like, you know, you do better if you put in a higher group um, for various reasons. And I think some of those reasons are about teachers' expectations and beliefs yeah. and, and the kinds of work that they offer. Um, but how do you decide who gets to go up and who gets to go mm. down? For example, if you've got, say, 30 places in your top set, and you've got 35 people who might yeah. fit in there who have got, or you you know, you've got five spaces left or, or you've got one space left and five kids who've yeah, got the same yeah. score or something. How do you decide who gets mm. that point? And, and how do you decide knowing that you're going to systematically disadvantage yes. them? Yes. Um, and then that will be a, a, 
a more significant decision if it's about going into a different exam. Yes. Um, so I guess yeah, you've got to do that carefully, right? Right, okay. Right. I'll tell you where I'm at now, Tom. You could potentially... And I was, I was there with Helen as well. You, you, you can sell me on the dream of mixed attainment. I, I like it in principle. I've had lots of problems with setting for the exact reason you say. It's very it's quite easy to move a kid up. It's very difficult to move them down. It destroys their confidence. It's a difficult conversation with them. The parents are against it and so on. It's, it's, it's problematic. So I'm loving the idea of mixed attainment. I think there are two potential barriers, certainly in my experience. And I'm hoping you can tackle both of these. One is from um, an individual teacher's perspective. So what what do the lessons look like? What are some of the kind of guiding principles that are going to make this have, have the best chance of being successful? But I'm also very interested from you in the position of a head of department. And I, I guess the lessons from this transfer across to any change a head of department wants to make. How, how do you get the rest of the team on board with this? Particularly if you've got teachers who are very experienced, who've ne- but not experienced in mixed attainment. So it's so up to you which one you tackle first, either from a head of department perspective or a teacher perspective. But, but how do we make mixed attainment work, Tom? Well, I mean, actually, I'll just pick up on one of the things you said about how damaging it is. You don't want to move anyone down. So actually, yeah. that is a common thing among teachers. They, they really worry about moving people down. So some schools yeah. have a policy where they only will only move people up. Because <laughs> like one of the kind of drivers is you say, oh, if you work hard, you might get moved up. Yeah, I don't know if yeah, that's yeah. A di- a, an advantage. Like, do you want to get away from the teacher who knows you really <laughs> well and understands you? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if you don't, if, if it's so bad to get moved down, what yeah. about the people who are already down? Oh, no, I agree. No, I agree. I agree. It's, I agree. Hu- no. it's hugely problematic. Um, so lessons. I mean, I think you can just teach your lessons and tweet. You can just tweak what you're doing lesson-wise. I, but... I can't, Tom. I can't. Come on. Come on. Well, I suppose kind of like if you look at the kind of um, the things that you've described, that that's quite similar to what they would do in um, – I don't see it as being massively different to what they would do in like the Pacific Rim countries when they're teaching content, like they would look at an example together and they would think about it and you would have the kind of like, you would encourage the self-explanation and those kinds of things. Um, So I think you can have, you can have all of that stuff. Um, Yeah. So I don't necessarily think that is, that's problematic. Um, it wouldn't be how you would do it, would it? Though. Well, I, th- I think it would be. I think it would depend, right? I think it depends on what you're teaching and what your purposes are, what your goals are in that. So, kind of broadly, um, yeah, that would be one of maybe kind of like I don't know three or four different types of strategies that I would typically okay. use. So. But I suppose my if so if if I start with that one, I would be going for kind of like what what I would call economic whole class teaching. Okay. So Dave Hewitt, you've had on a friend of the podcast. Um, <laughs> he his PhD thesis was was called the principles of economy for teaching mathematics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I had that in my big three last time, so people could check out if they're interested in. Um, but the whole class stuff is really about going um that you're trying to work direct directly with mathematical awarenesses um you're trying to make it sufficiently complex that everyone that everyone has to think about it 
um, breaking the breaking bits down, the um, practice through progress type things, which we might get onto about thinking about. Um, so I might want to talk about kind of subordinating practice, but yeah, I think you wouldn't find you probably wouldn't find that. Well, I personally don't find it that different to. Um, like it wouldn't look necessarily that different to someone doing a kind of direct instruction. Okay. So like Dave had this article, I don't know if you've seen, called like Force in Awareness, which is no. a Catenio thing. So Force in Awareness, I think is like, is really, really close and really similar to direct teaching. So I guess, I mean, one of the things when you interviewed Dave, I think I got the impression that you were imagining <laughs> um and actually, whenever people talk about like inquiry stuff, that they might be just like leaving everyone to it. Whereas it's, it's a cliche, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like Dave would be very active in sure. in teaching something, um, but also very focused. Like mm-hmm. part of the role of the teacher there is is um, editing what people say, so you're focusing yes. down very firmly on 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 deliberate things and amplifying them. So like editor and amplifier kind of thing. Um, so I think that sort of stuff would look quite similar, but I would be doing, so I would be thinking about trying to do that in a way where, um, so I mentioned direct access. So I just want everyone, to, I, I'm just expecting everyone to be able to do this. Um, so I'm using the things that everyone, that everyone kind of brings with. Um, with them so that would be one type I guess I would be interested in having kind of like a rich starting point so kind of some kind of low threshold high ceiling tasks some of the time though I guess I might use them in ways that are um, different to what how how people might traditionally like imagine Um, okay so so one of the things that I think about is I want there to be something for you to find right at the end of this, but I'm kind of interested. My, my interest as a teacher is not on that. I'm interested in what you're practicing and okay. I want there to be something to find. So there is something interesting to find for people who don't necessarily need the practice. Mm. Um, so there's more of this kind of like being able to work mathematically. Yes. But I want to get a lot of practice of this thing and I want a context for you to be able to to be able to kind of like work on developing as a mathematician. Um, yeah, so I think um, another thing that, I quite like things like open middle tasks. So, um, so I might have something like, I might teach you one way of finding the area of a trapezium, but then I might say, okay, and now the task is um, to find as many different ways of working out the area mm. of a trapezium mm. as possible. And so, and I want you to kind of like come up with convincing reasons and explain them clearly and use diagrams and stuff like that um and you might work on that in a group and get everyone to be talking about it so that everyone can explain everyone's ideas and that kind of thing which i guess might have more in common with like a japanese like problem solving type lesson Mm -hmm. um we're trying to understand and use other people's methods and ideas um 
another thing I suppose another feature is like making explicit use of mistakes and misconceptions like you know the kinds of things um so things like um if you use the big blue box like improving learning in maths Malcolm Swan's stuff so these are brilliant tasks that have spent lots of time and money on refining um but the types of tasks are very useful for, and I think again in in a mixed same group, like if you want, but in any group, right? And and actually, the secret for all of these tasks is if it works in mixed attainment, it works yeah. in any group, right? So that's yeah. all fine. Um, but if you're doing something like an always, sometimes, never true, like an, an example of a type of lesson is I might go before I teach fractions, um, say the four rules of fractions. I might go, I'll write down the things that you know about the four rules of fractions beforehand. Yes. And I just collect together all of those statements together yeah. and I just write them on cards and I say, sort them into which ones are always true, sometimes true or never true, find examples that fit and you know justify your answers and that kind of thing. Um, so you just meet those things head on. Um, yeah, I'm gonna pause. <laughs> okay no i mean what's interesting about this is i i agree with absolutely everything you've said and it, it, it sounds like it sounds like good teaching it sounds like really good choices of tasks and the kind of tasks that i i, I love using myself what well, where i think i've got the the challenge and it's it's my problem this but i'm, I'm hoping you can help yeah, i'm hoping you can help me with this is I'm, I'm thinking of the kind of group dynamics here so it really frustrates me whenever i'm doing a task with students any group of students where you've got some students who are naturally working a bit slower than other students. They haven't quite made the connection yet. And yet that they're, they're kind of forced to work at the pace of the quickest child in the group because that, that other child in the group has got there quicker. And they're like, oh, come on. And they're, maybe they're explaining to the child, but it's, it's, they've not given them the time that they need to, to make those connections themselves. And it always becomes a bit of a hurry. And that child always feels like they're being like dragged along a little bit. And my fear is in a mixed attainment group, with the gaps in attainment wider, and possibly that translates to the gaps in the time needed to make these connections themselves taking a little bit longer. I just feel that, again, it goes back to this notion of success. I'm, I'm not sure the, the children who are struggling will get that feeling of success because they're always, they never get to get there themselves. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, it does. But one of the things that's key to remember about this, and this is about I guess about the thing I was saying about the kids having a fixed ability that we can easily measure. Mm. Like we know that kids have spiky profiles, right? Yeah. You know, some kids are better at English than they are at maths yes, or, yes. but also within subjects, like you might be yeah. better at geometry than yeah. you are at um, algebra. So I remember teaching this one group and um, so they were a mixed group. They were year seven and I had this girl and we had uh, we were teaching I was doing a number topic um and she was really like you're describing like slow to latch onto things obviously yeah. hadn't practiced things as much um the next thing we taught was a thing about angles um and kind of like measuring using a protractor those mm. kinds of things she was like top of the class yeah 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 right and it's it's just one of the key issues i think about teaching whoever you're teaching is making too many assumptions about yes. who can and who cannot 
Um, and, you know, it, those things that you describe are tricky to deal with. But teaching, no one said that teaching is easy, right? Um, but, like, you can kind of, I think you can enjoy the challenge of this. And, it, and it's, just, it's just slightly different challenges. It's just slightly different challenges. So you have to think, oh, you have to upfront acknowledge that people will be different. I mean, and that's how you get away from the, if you're teaching a set, like teaching to the middle kind of thing, yes, because yes. it's really obvious that people are in different places here. And, yeah. you know, there are various things you can do. You can, it's worth having kind of flexible within class grouping so groups that change around so i might if you give out your kind of like diagnostic question or something at the end of the lesson at the start of the lesson you might go right these people well maybe wouldn't say this to them these people didn't get it but you're going to work together or these people did get it you're going to work together but you can you can do that kind of thing the regrouping um and as long as that's flexible i mean it's worth doing because if you if you always work with the same people like it stops people it stops students from kind of challenging each other so they often end up having the same misconceptions like embedded because it becomes uncomfortable to challenge each other whereas actually if you split up if you move your groups kind of regularly um it's not so much of an issue um so yeah does that answer that question yeah yeah i'm happy happy enough with that tick tick for that one well let's talk now then about kind of departmental change tom and maybe we'll frame it in the context of moving a department towards mixed attainment. But as I say, I think the lessons kind of transfer across any kind of change uh, that's needed. How did you how did you make it work? Because I imagine you'd have some teachers there who potentially were resistant to it. Um, well, what what some of the techniques you used to get, get the team on board? Well, the th- I suppose really what I wanted was, uh, I said at the start, like one of the, one of the issues was, people weren't in a position to talk to each other about what was going on in their classrooms. Yes. yes. Right. And I think if you, um, if you asked the teachers that were in my department, like after we'd moved, after it had been kind of embedded, they'd have said um, that we had this like really collegiate collaborative atmosphere where everyone's kind of talking about mm-hmm. their, mm-hmm. what they're doing, got the kind of like the shared workload. Um, and it's sort of, it's hard at the start, but then it's just about kind of like little tweaks. So how that worked for us is we went gradually, started off with just year seven, but we all did the same scheme of work. Yes. So that was one of the things. So even if you don't go to mixed groups, I think everyone should have, be entitled to the full curriculum. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think you make it harder for yourself if you, um, yeah, if you don't, if, if you don't have people who are pushing on, then I think it's a tendency for teachers to go, oh, they're not going to get there or, yes, or, or yes. To, um, that kind of thing. But we had everyone, everyone working on the same, um, everyone working on the same scheme of work. Um, and yeah, we'd made it so you, and at the time it was kind of like, no one did this, but we, we spent a long time on each topic um, so that you had, enough space to address issues and to make sure that everyone had the kind of basic actually a kind of principle i have is that you always whatever whatever you think you need people to get to always teach beyond that okay always teach beyond that um because 
Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if this is true, but there's this Barrick and Hall paper. It's a really great paper. I don't know if you've met about lifetime maths. No, um, no. So basically, if you look at people who are in their kind of 60s and 70s, you can un- they can do the maths, which is one under <laughs> the highest level they went to. So if they did maths at college, right, they can do like the GCSE level good, of maths. Yes. So yes. so always kind of like going above all, all the time kind of going above and then like the minimum that everyone gets to is the thing that you oh, needed so, everyone okay. to get to oh, that's good, yeah. um, and I think there's various ways to do this in terms of like how you extend the tasks and how you, how you use the kind of like the practice tasks um, but yeah so we did that in, in the first year and we had this shared scheme of work and you know we had say I can't remember but some, say it was something like 20 lessons on um 20 lessons on expressions algebraic expressions or something and initially people were like oh how are you going to fill this how are you going to fill this so i assume that's from going somewhere like maybe six lessons up to 20 or something your traditional schema work works it off in two weeks or whatever sure so what i mean what one of the things that i basically saw as a bit of an issue is it would come up on the scheme of work pythagoras no one would read the detail (laughs) of it so people would do things like start from scratch on pythagoras as if no one had taught it so you never you never kind of moved on and you you know people had their three favorite lessons on pythagoras (laughs) and then you do that every time you taught pythagoras so you know some kids had already done it before and already met it and some (laughs) some people didn't have like the groundwork laid and all of that um so i wanted to get away from that a bit and you know having 20 lessons instead of three really really gets yeah. that but the reality of that was like people are going oh i wish we had more lessons i wish we had more lessons to do on this like more afterwards. Than 20. wow yeah because when you when you kind of like look at the richness of of things mm. and look at you know going beyond and how you can do that um yeah you there's no mathematical concept that you can't extend right um yeah so we did that gradually um and then we had it in another year we had we kind of like shared the workload so one of the things we did with those kind of the 20 lessons is we went in i can't remember if it was twos or threes to think about like an outline structure of what that would be like um and then um so that everyone had something to work with and then one of the key things that i think people should do if you don't already do this and again you know i said about the um spending longer on a topic at the time no one was doing that really but i think it's much more common now at the at the time no one had department meetings where they didn't do admin so i would strongly suggest that people have department meetings where you don't do admin and you just talk about teaching and learning and the way the way that we would run that is me or someone else would bring the the year seven the year seven tasks and we work on it work on the maths and then when you when you're doing that you talk about um like where where's what are you taking for granted here where are Mm. kids going to get unstuck what Mm. do you need to have cut what do you need to do before this what might make a good support for this what would make a good extension what are good questions that you could ask what are good questions that they might ask while you're doing this and how can you expand on them and and what's a good kind of like 
what do you offer when they do this so you had all that and you worked through it and you know unsurprisingly teachers can work through that quicker so you come out of that like that meeting and you've basically got all the lessons sorted for that week's year seven or something like that and over time as you run through like one of the things is um you don't have to be going oh i taught adding fractions to seven set five how am i going to teach it to seven set nine or something Mm. like that like you just go everyone's now doing the same things and each year you're refining them and making them better and everyone's got this shared experience so if you don't know what to do or your lesson didn't go too well you can talk to everyone in the department about it right um and this is one of the ways where i think it makes it you know it's harder at the start if you're switching whereas and and i suppose one of the interesting things is like in scandinavia no one writes down what's different about this because this is what they just do every day Mm. um and you know and and maybe I guess the thing about like, what should the default position be? Like, would I say, oh, everyone should switch to mixed attainment overnight? I don't think I would because what teachers are good at is what they've practiced. And if you've practiced teaching sets, um, I think I'd be making much, much more gradual changes. Um, But there's all these benefits about having the same tasks that every time you teach them and then every time you teach them you can get more out of the task and more out of those students so you can bring you know you guess you get more get more out of everything but then also that feeds into everyone else's because you go oh here's this interesting thing uh, that i noticed there's this little problem here that they're having and then you can work together on addressing that and put that in um so that kind of collaborative stuff and we always had the thing that you didn't have to do that. You could always do that or something else. Um, but mostly people did that because that was that was fun and it was and it was helpful. Um, yeah, so I think those are those are some of the advantages um, and the the kind of um, the how that works day to day. I think it's really useful to have maths meetings where you do maths and talk about maths talk about teaching maths so don't do admin (laughs) do do admin by email or often you know i've been in meetings i've run meetings bad meetings where you're asking one person something you know ask that one person something separately yes i used to do a department bulletin for the information giving like you, you, you need the bit where you're together to kind of work together um so I think there are other ways around some of those things. Well, there are a, f- a few things to say there, Tom. So first off, I, I completely agree. Having teachers teaching the same task and being able to talk about it is just a huge advantage. I think that's doable in SETID. I think it's harder. But if you have the right task, again, these not the high barrier, low ceiling ones I described before, but the low barrier, high ceiling one that everybody uses, we often used to have the same task to kickstart year seven and year eight and year nine. And it was brilliant because everyone was buzzing about using them. If you used them last year, you got better at using them. If a new teacher joined the school, you could talk to them about this task. Everyone benefited from that. So I I 100% agree with that. Uh, The other thing I 100% agree with is departmental time, making the most of those departmental meetings, cutting the admin out and, and having teachers work on maths 
And do maths themselves, for me, is the only way to prepare for teaching something or using a task, because it's only when you do it yourself, as you said, you you spot the subtleties, the sticking points, and, and so on and so forth. I guess a lot of the success of this relies on the tasks themselves, right? Like if it's the wrong kind of task, it's not going to be suitable for a mixed attainment group, just as it's not going to be suitable for a bottom set or a top set for, for, for that matter. So this will kind of segue us on nicely, I guess, to for the final part of our conversation to talk about some of these tasks. And um, if we just talk practically for a second, Tom, where were the tasks coming from with within your department? Were they kind of ones that you'd sourced from, from kind of common sources or were they ones you'd written yourself? Where, where, where was the, the bank of tasks? Because the task feels to me to be a pivotal part of the success of this. Yeah, I mean, a mixture. So I mentioned like the standards unit stuff. Mm. So we'd use some of those and then make tasks that are in a kind of similar vein. That So there's that sort of thing. Um, yeah, but... I guess one of the things that we had is we always started each topic with a with a kind of common task, mm. um, which you might which might be similar to kind of what what you think of as being like an inquiry type thing. Um, and I thought you might ask me, um, or, or you might say, "Oh, I would do this after and this before." Um, and I just kind of one of the ways that I think about that is I have the. <laughs> The, the after at the start but it's like after something that came in the past so <laughs> so for that. example if we had a we had a module on kind of like uh, right angle triangles in year nine and the first task is do you know the tilted squares thing yes so I everyone do. works on that right um but w- the way what you're practicing is ideas around like the concept of area. Like that's mm. what that's the thing that you're mm. doing by getting by working on those kinds of tasks. So that is something that's come that's something that's come before that you're coming back to. So all the time um, you're trying to build on something that you've done before. Like when we do probability, um, yeah. Well, actually, let's do say the other way around. Like a big kind of driving question for fractions when I teaching fractions is i'm okay which is bigger four sevenths or five ninths okay and and talking about the the different ways that you could approach that question and then so you might you might draw it on a number line so i might have a lesson that's around number lines or you might do that by changing them to decimals so i might have some lessons that are around that and we might get diverted into terminating and recurring decimals and things that are interesting but decimals that end up Things that give the same decimal value are um, fractions that give the same decimal value or equivalent fractions. So I might have a lesson around mm-hmm. equivalent fractions. But that's all kind of like driven from this kind of driving task or a space for exploration around like which is bigger, four sevenths or five ninths. And I don't care which is bigger. Like the goal isn't, you know, the answer isn't the end. It's the, it's the kind of the start of the learning in some ways. Um, but then later when we did probability, I would have I would set up a situation where you have say um, counters in a bag and you have and and I go oh which one are you more likely to pick out of and it's four sevenths and five ninths or something yeah so we've got yes. so you're coming back to these previous ideas that you've had before I see um, but in terms of tasks yeah I mean you can make your own I think it's straightforward 
relatively straightforward <laughs> to make on, on, on excel of course. <laughs> well the, I, the way i talked about making tasks before is adapting and extending um so taking like a fairly familiar problem um and just t- so the kind of process is you list all the givens and then so i have a problem like um find the average of these five numbers find the mean median and mode and it turns out the the mode's three and the median's three and the mean's four and then just i could just like list the givens of that you gave me five numbers i had to find the mean median and mode and just change something so what if i give you the mean median and mode and you have to find Uh, and then that becomes like more of potentially an interesting task so you do have to work on it maybe in a department Mm. um so that's one way but there are loads of tasks out there like old atm publications are full of tasks like points of departure and um they're full of tasks loads of them are collected on enrich or don's website uh, median there's there's loads of good tasks around but the key i mean and i say good tasks but i kind of think there aren't good tasks (laughs) it depends on how you use them and so the thing that matters is getting a task and working out how to wring the most out of it as possible and that comes with collaboration and, and people trying them out and so on. I've just, you've just reminded me of something that you said uh, at the end of our last conversation, which blew my mind as much as the Excel thing. How you, you just have everything in one folder, which was absolutely ridiculous. I'm th- all your tasks and stuff. Tell me, as a department, you had folders because I'm th- like, how did you how did you store and organize all these tasks? How, how as a member of your department, how am I finding what I'm doing next week? Yeah, so we had um, like a shared drive, I guess. Um, and then, so we had a single page like overview. Yeah. So a single sheet, um, which basically covered everything because initially I was saying that people only looked at the first page. Yeah, 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 but yeah. then what we were doing is kind of collaborating on these tasks. And I recorded these things in like a Word document or something, um, recorded all these plans. And then, put all the tasks in the folder so you would have we just had one folder for each half term in each year and then a word document that linked that had a bit about the task not enough for someone who'd never been in the conversation i don't think Um, but enough if you'd been in the conversation that you knew what that thing was and then you could and then a link to it so yeah that's Yeah, that's where the problem of organisation comes in, when you have to get other people, you have to share it with other people. So, yeah, definitely had that. Um, And, yeah, people used that quite a bit, added to it, adapted it, uh, made it better. Got it. Right. Well, Tom, we've got about 15 minutes left before I've got to prep for this uh, this talk I'm doing. it's up to you. I'm, I'm keen. I want to talk about practicing mathematics because some of your tasks that you've written and that you've chosen, I think are phenomenal. But at the same time, I don't want to rush through it. Do you think in that time we could cover maybe one or two of those tasks? Is that the most useful thing to do, do you think, for listeners? What, what, what do you fancy? Um, yeah, well, I'd do whatever you want, really. Let's do it. <laughs> well, I fancy doing a bit of math, so let's let's do it. Let's do it. So, because um, I, I know you're big into your your task design and your choice of tasks, um, and also we've we've spoke earlier in this uh, series to Colin Foster, and we talked about his notion of a mathematical etude and so on. So, I'm very keen to get to grips with what you consider to be a good task for, for practice and, and and the way it may run. So, you sent me a load through when we were prepping for our first conversation years ago. Now, which one do you want to have a look at first? Which uh, you choose. Um, 
the first one. <laughs> so actually, I have the first one up. So um, let's do that. And am I okay to share this task on the show notes page so people sure, can, sure. Uh, can, can listeners can play? Yeah. So actually, what I suggested is, um, <laughs> yeah, I have to remember why I why I did this one. But yeah, um, a comparison between two tasks. So I've got one, which is. Um, something you might imagine seeing in a, in a textbook, something like find the value of each expression by substituting in x equals 7. And I've got yes. expressions x plus 2 equals x plus 5 equals 2x equals 3x, so on, 2x minus 3, that kind of thing. So loads of expressions. Um, and then the kind of task that I was going to compare it to is um, you have all of those same expressions written on cards and the task is to just order them if x is seven yes yes so though you know to uh, we talked a little bit about this last time but you know like to the untrained eye that might look like the same task if someone came in to observe you they might look like the same task um but for me there's some different things going on here I think you get the same practice. You get yeah. to practice the substitution, um, but you also get some. As, as an advantage is where attention is. So one of the things that I'm interested in, in terms of like my research about practice. I mean, I could talk about practice kind of forever, but um, is where attention is. And what you mm. do in the second task, the ordering task, is you subtly shift where the attention is. So the attention, um, or sometimes this is called like the outer meaning of the task. So Dictata talks about the inner meanings and the outer meanings of tasks. So the outer meaning is what you, the learner, perceive the task to be. So you perceive this task to be, put them in order. Yeah. Right. What I'm interested in, the inner meaning of this is I want you to practice the the substitution. But I want to do it by taking your attention of away from this so i want that kind of substitution to move from being something which is a conscious effortful act which requires all your attention to kind of like the way i think about fluency is moving that to something that is unconscious and effortless like you can do it without thinking about it right so what you're trying to do is take the attention away from that and the way that you kind of get fluent is not by putting all your attention on this one thing, but by just gradually shifting it to be something that you're just subordinating to um, the the task of putting them in order. So you're just using it as a kind of, um, you're just using it to do this bigger job of ordering. This is interesting because this is something when I spoke to, to Dave, Dave Hewitt, I couldn't get my head around this, Tom. And I think I'm starting to get it a little bit more now. So if I'm your student and you want me to get fluent at substitution, um, you, I assume at some point, like, obviously, you're gonna, you, we're, we're going to discuss what the concept of substitution is. Like, I'm going to have some basic underlying knowledge of it. But then you don't want me thinking hard just about substitution because I'm not going to get fluent that way. You want me to be practicing substitution, but kind of thinking about something else is it is it that simple or is the yeah i mean i just want your attention to be off the thing i really want you to get better at 
just off, just slightly off that. that um, sounds again counterintuitive there, Tom. It feels like then I'm going to be missing things or not spotting relationships or making mistakes. Yeah. So what I I I mean I sort of think of this as it's like um, you're trying to tap into to how you how you learn things. Like you know, I've got a little kid who is learning to walk. Right. But it's not going, oh, I must walk. He's going, <laughs> can I get over there? Right. So yeah, it's, okay. so his okay. kind of like learning to walk is subordinated to oh, okay. wanting to get yeah. over there. Yeah. And, and you know, he's climbing up things, not because he wants to climb up the thing, but because he wants to get something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that kind of thing. And so one, one way of thinking about the kind of drivers of learning um, is that you're that you're doing it for something but i suppose the i mean that's just one thing about about this task but there's plenty of other things like i can go oh you might notice that sometimes two things are in the same place so if we reorder this with different values like sometimes some things are in the same place right so you know sometimes x plus two is the same as two x for example so i could begin to go I could begin to be working like informally on, well, I suppose that's inequalities, um, that kind of thing. And I might notice that sometimes, um, or always, two expressions are the same. So um, 2x plus 3, where, or two lots of x plus 3 is always the same as 2x plus 6 or something like yes, that. Yes, yes. Um, so I might notice those kinds of things. Um, and I can do, I can get, I can kind of like extend within this task, extend the mathematical thinking. I like it. I really, really like it. I have, I think it's super, super smart. Is there a chance? I often think this, and I've no solution to this myself, Tom, but so the interesting maths for me comes with those prompts like w- are the expressions always in this order what what what's going to be is it always going to be the same value and so on is there a danger and again this isn't harking back to mix the terms i'm thinking of any class here but how do we ensure that all students experience that interesting maths it feels to me like you've got to go through the initial substitution which is is no better than the the the, the previous exercise and i'm not saying the previous exercise is is, is worse but you've got to almost qualify to get to the interesting maths, if, if that makes sense. Did you see that as a, as a, as a concern or, or not? Um, no, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure I quite get that because okay. everyone's just getting the practice. This is the substitution practice. Yeah. So yeah, the, yeah, I mean, yeah, the yeah. thing about the etudes thing, so I guess a lot of, um, so in, in the book that Dave and I did, we kind of think yeah. about this kind of practice through progress in two different ways. And, um, this kind of practice through progress where you're progressing, there's potential to progress as a mathematician. Um, it's like there are opportunities for those things about thinking for yourself and that yeah. kind of stuff, making conjectures and testing them. Um, that's available. It's really similar to Collins' etudes, right? And the point of those, I think, is that they're not, um, they're not a, like a bonus thing that you do after mm. you've done this, um, mm. after you've done the kind of like traditional practice yeah, or yeah, boring yeah. practice or yeah, something. Because yeah. um, actually boring practice is probably the way to describe it because I don't care if, you know, I like an interesting exercise, mm. right? I love an interesting mm. exercise, mm. but 
you can just do this you can do this kind of thing like an etude or this kind of thing instead of boring practice yeah um and everyone is getting the chance to work on that not just like the fastest people or not just the people who finished the previous work um and you know like what if you'd give out the boring thing what do you do after that like do you give out more of the same or do you give them a a different task that moves them on yeah do you move them on to the thing um which i'll later want to do with everyone so that's a problem anyway yeah yeah. Uh, unless i keep moving them on yes so where if you have it kind of like within one task like everyone gets the kind of opportunity to do that and you know we said about like kids have these spiky profiles you know if you've done more of this with your tutor or something you might be better off it it's probably not because tom's a great teacher it's like (laughs) you know you know it depends on the biggest difference that there is between kids is like their prior experiences yeah um yeah so kind of everyone gets to work on this but if you want when i want to work on those ideas formally you can do that later Mm. you can formalize things later um and you might go oh this is an interesting thing let's let's everyone work on it yeah like i might want to informally work on um solving equations before i do the formal thing because often i mean I've seen lots of lessons where kids can solve equations and get the right answer, but they don't really know what they're doing. They know the mechanism, but they don't know what an equation is. Whereas actually, if I say, can you find a value which makes these two cards the same? And I work informally on that. Like doing that by substitution is not efficient, but it does give me plenty of practice of substitution, which is the thing that I care about at the moment that you get practice of that. But it does make you go, Oh, I wonder if there's a quicker way. I wonder yeah. if there's a better way. So you're foreshadowing this idea that sometimes we might we might want to be able to quickly find the value that makes two expressions the same. Yes. And you're kind of foreshadowing that work. So it's you've laid the groundwork for it later. So and actually when you come to do it more formally, um, they know what you're on about. Everyone knows what what you mean by that. And I don't think it's the case that um I don't think it's necessarily the case that like some people are doing that and some people aren't. Um, but you might just be doing it. Some people might be doing it sooner. Some people might be noticing it sooner, but it's okay to go, Oh, someone noticed that sometimes these two are the same. Can everyone choose two and see when they're the same? It's yes, fine to do yes. that. Right? Like not everyone has to do the notice. Um, you know, sometimes they can. Yeah, no, that's a good one. That's a good one. What I'm thinking, Tom, is again, I, I would genuinely, I genuinely mean this. I'd love nothing more than for the next couple of hours to work through these these other tasks with you and and just listen to you. But I think I'm going to have to get you back to complete the trilogy for where we're just going to talk about practicing maths because I think we could both get carried away on this one. So I'm going to put the that substitution one in the show notes and i'm just going to give you the opportunity just if there's anything else that we haven't covered today that you particularly wanted just to mention or anything or direct anybody towards and then i'm going to get a verbal agreement from you live on the show that you'll be happy to come back to uh, to complete the trilogy so any, anything else you want to mention tom well um let me see i i suppose in terms of the mixed attainment thing i mean one thing that i'd say is like partly like I think it might be a kind of Trojan horse to as it's a one mechanism for getting teachers to talk more about their teaching and to change the way to 
to kind of like evolve their beliefs about what students are capable of. Um, certainly one of a, a game I used to play um, is occasionally I would take two bits of work to the head and I'd say, oh, one of these kids would have been in the bottom group and one of these kids would have been in the top group. Which one is which? <laughs> and like they'd never be able to tell, kind of thing. Um, so I think, yeah, it's really it's really useful. I think it could be potentially be kind of a catalyst for improving students' experience of what maths is like. But I think it is worth thinking about if you're in a school like are you aware of the issues around setting are you aware of you know kids start off um confident and it reduces their confidence over time you know in year seven teachers um if if in the surveys of kids they think oh actually maybe setting's a good idea in year seven they think it's a good idea by the mm. end of year eight they think it's inequitable mm. like and that's kids in the top set and kids in the bottom set mm. and actually you know some kids benefit from setting and some kids like being in a group but some kids in your top group go oh the pace is too fast or yeah, um, yeah. i'm not given the detailed time and thinking and actually we know that from studies where they teach mixed groups lower down and then move they change teachers change the way they teach so i think it's worth thinking about what are the issues around setting can you can you try and do some things i think most of the benefits as i perceive them of um, mixed attainment could be achieved in um in a setted environment but when they tried to do that in the big trial people couldn't people weren't able to do it um, so it's worth thinking about kind of like your grouping approaches can you make it more equitable can you make the way if you are going to allocate viability make it more equitable um, and I guess one of the things that's why be, yeah you probably haven't got time for me to do my big three but one of the big three <laughs> would be and I can send you a link to this um UCL out of the grouping study did like the do's and don'ts of attainment grouping. So if you teach sets or if you teach mixed attainment groups, there are some things that are worth thinking about. Um, and yeah, to kind of like minimize any negative effects, it's worth thinking about. Um, Interesting. Interesting. Well, well, you, you're coming back on sooner rather than later here, Tom, to complete the trilogy. We're going to do like some movie. Tri we're going to do like... Um, so back to the back to the future i think they filmed two and three really close together so we're going to do that we're going to get back on fairly soon we're going to do finishing practicing mathematics then we're going to do your big three um, as well but i'll tell you what tom this is giving me loads to think about it's a brilliant end of season finale for the nine episodes in the research in action season two so it's always a pleasure speaking to you tom i always enjoy it and i always learn loads and i always come away with a headache and that's not just because i've done about eight hours of interviews today. i don't know how I've you're got... still awake <laughs> but tom frankham thanks so much for joining us today cheers so there you have it there was my interview 
the fantastic Tom Frankham. What a great way to end this uh, this season of podcasts. I've really, really enjoyed them. Uh, Tom's brilliant. I love just speaking to Tom kind of socially whenever, well, back in the day when we did see people face-to-face in conferences. But also I love having these, uh, these in-depth conversations with him. He's, he's flipping on the ball, is Tom. Uh, as, as I've said for a long time on this podcast, that the mistake I make with when booking these guests is I book too many clever people. I need some thickos on that make me look good. Um, and Tom's, <laughs> Tom's really like he, he very rarely does he let any of my kind of statements go by without without um, scrutinising them. And and that that's absolutely fantastic. He, he answered all my questions and more besides. And and as I said in the show, uh, we've got to get him on to to complete the Tom Frankham trilogy because there's so much more to go at here. Um, I really hope you enjoyed and found that useful. Um, as I say, in the current climate where many of you might be gearing up to teach mixed entertainment teaching, perhaps just for your year sevens uh, in September. Um, it's again, I if you're feeling a bit out of your depth, apprehensive, and so on, I'm, I would be exactly uh, in the same boat. But it's it's one of those where it's it's also potentially a really good opportunity, and it might be a bit of a game changer. It goes back to something um, Mark McCourt um, always says that um, mixed entertainment teaching it could be the best thing in the world, but it could be a disaster. Same as setting, it could be the best thing in the world, or it could be a disaster. It all it's all down to the support the teachers get in terms of training, um, that opportunity for collaboration, discussion, and so on. If you just if it's one of those things that is kind of imposed upon you, um, with with no support with no opportunity to, to work together plan it through and so on and so forth and um, any any change is going to be a disaster and mixed attainment is, is included very much uh, in that but hopefully um, this episode um, and also the supporting resources that I'll link to and um, that Tom sent me through and also Helen Hindle's work and the mixed attainment community to, can, can help people um, support them and see this um, as an opportunity. So just a few things to reflect on. Firstly, just really, really quickly, just um, a bit of personal news for me because um, I've uh, um, I put on Twitter, that I've uh, had my first operation in my uh, bid to get rid of this stupid long COVID that I've got. And um, a lot of people contacted me to say they didn't know I was ill and so on. So really, really quickly, just, uh, just so I can just say this once. Um, I yeah I, I I got COVID back in January 2020 really early doors I think I was I was doing a few talks in London a few kind of international events and I think I must have picked it up there um, and I had real breathing difficulties um, I came out in a full body rash all this kind of stuff lost my t- 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 <laughs> sense of taste and smell which still hasn't come back by the way uh, 18 months on now but the doctors didn't diagnose it as uh, COVID they just said it was a severe chest infection because no one was really chatting about it then but as a result of that um, I've gone from having no breathing difficulties in my life to now honestly it's unbelievable I wake up in the morning and I've got to take what's the equivalent of a bong you want to see this this, right it's um it's i think it's called a spacer it's this really powerful inhaler and i've got to take it through this tube so i've got to have a couple of puffs of that just to get me going in the morning uh same thing at night and then i've also got to take this monte lucas tablet uh, which is re- again re- really strong they're, they're treating it as if i've got kind of severe asthma until all the breathing centers reopen and they can they can really kind of come up with some bit more personalized treatment uh, for me i've got a sterile nasal spray and so on but anyway i had the first stage of uh, some treatment to to remove these flipping nasal polyps that have uh, that have developed as a result of uh, airway difficulties that i've had and so on and so forth anyway 
quite a long story short, I'm, I'm doing really well. But I just have blood dripping from my nose, which isn't a brilliant look, um, I'll be honest with you. And it does make talking for long periods of time fairly difficult just because I can't get any air um, up my nose at the moment until uh, until my nose recovers. I'm not allowed to blow my nose for 10 days. And this is somebody who blows his nose about every 10 minutes on average. So this is a bit of a challenge. But the, the benefit to listeners here will be that I have to keep this takeaway relatively short. So uh, you'll be you'll be pleased there, pleased at that, I'm sure. But uh, thank you for all the all the kind messages that I've I've, I've received and stuff. I, I really do appreciate it. Uh, anyway, so uh, just a, a couple of quick takeaways from me. The first is uh, on tasks, and I was really pleased that Tom uh, got to speak about tasks and practicing maths and so on. That that is very much uh, his area of expertise, and I've spoken in the past. I'm a huge fan of his and Dave's uh, ATM book on practicing mathematics. Um, and what I like about this is it's all too easy to kind of band around the phrase low barrier, high ceiling when, when we think about tasks. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I got it the wrong way around uh, in, in the podcast. Um, but what, it's one of those phrases that, of, of course, that's what you want uh, in a task. But what does that actually look like? And just to move the kind of conversation away from mixed attainment, the, these these activities, these tasks are great for any class uh, because they, they give every learner an opportunity to get in there, taste success and so on. But then the, the challenge just runs throughout them and it's just nice to have practical examples of these tasks as opposed to it be kind of this generic label that you say you know a low barrier high ceiling test well what does it actually look like in the classroom so really good examples there from tom um, and again there's some fast fantastic examples um in him and his and dave's book and uh, it's really worth checking out and of course in in the mixed attainment community just generally because there is, I think it's fair to say, an increased onus or need to find these kind of tasks and use them regularly when you are teaching in a mixed attainment environment. And therefore, teachers uh, who teach in any classroom setup, I think, could really, really benefit from that. Um, but the big thing, of course, I just wanted to reflect on um, is mixed attainment teaching. I've, I've been public in the past uh, in saying that I would really struggle with it. It's, it's not something I've had vast experience with um, at all. My preference would be setting, but I think that's because that's my experience and I've, I've enjoyed teaching students in sets um, of, of all different um, attainment levels, low, medium and high and so on. Um, I find it easier to plan, easier to select the activities and so on. But that, that is probably just down to my, firstly, my lack of experience and also my lack of training. Um, and I'm excited when I hear like Helen Hindle chat on the podcast a few years ago and I hear Tom ch uh, talk on the podcast. I get excited by it. I get excited by the idea of it. But then, then again, at the same time, whenever I have teachers on the show who um, teach in sets, Joe Morgan, whoever it may be, I get excited by that as, as well. Um, but what I what I found particularly useful, Tom, um, he sent me through loads of links. He's brilliant like that. And, and they'll all be in the show notes for you to check out. But he also sent me, sent me a fantastic document through uh, from UCL, the do's and don'ts of attainment grouping and it's just a, a really nice it's only a two-page two-page document but it's got some nice kind of statements and then it digs into them a little bit more so um you've got things like well what i like is let's find this one here uh don't give less homework to lower sets uh don't assign subject expert teachers only to top sets uh, I saw one here, don't teach to the middle, which again, is basically the list of don'ts is all the things that I do or have, or what kind of my instinct would be if I was teaching mixed attainment. Uh, don't plan three-part lessons for every class is an interesting one. And this one, I, I really found this interesting. Don't over-rely on high attainers explaining to others. And then you always kind of have the have the flip side of it. So if you're doing uh, setting, do change, uh, sorry, mixed attainment, do change in-class groupings regularly, do plan rich tasks, do have high expectations, 
expectations, do practice differentiation and so on. It's definitely worth checking out whichever, whatever your views are and your experiences are. Um, it's, it's, it's just it's just an interesting read, and as are all the t stuff that that Tom sent through. So, um, as I say, instead of me just kind of uh, prattling on, I'll put a link to all those. You can check them out, and and you can make your own mind up, or you can, if you if you're brave enough, you can put something on Twitter. But I'll just say flipping act, just. Uh, yeah, maybe mute your notifications for a couple of days because there are very few topics that seem to fire up people on Twitter and not always bring the best out of them than any chat about mixed attainment teaching. But there's a really positive community out there as well and lots of teachers who will be more than happy to share their experiences, both positive and negative. Anyway, I've got a bit of, bit of blood just finding its way into my mouth here. So I know you didn't want to hear a uh, picture that. So I'll shut up now. Uh, but I just wanted just to say a couple of things just to wrap up. Firstly, um, a huge thank you to Arc Maths for, for sponsoring this series of, of podcasts. It's it's only through that kind of support that I, I can put this together, basically in terms of paying for all the, the I've got to pay for all the hosting and so on and so forth. But more than that, I've got to uh, somehow bribe my wife to give me the time to sit in my office for hours on end, recording, editing, producing these shows and so on. So a massive thank you to Art Maths and please do check out the link that'll be in the show notes for, for their product there. Um, massive thank you to Colin Foster for helping put together this uh, series of, of episodes. I know it's a pain trying to organize things and to bring together, in this case, nine guests and in season one, 10 guests. And he sends me all the bios, areas of interest and so on. It's so, so useful. It makes my job really, really straightforward. So massive thank you to Colin. Uh, thank you to all the guests as well for giving up their time. Um, I, I hope most of them enjoyed it. It's, uh, I know like getting, I know from a personal perspective, getting to speak about your area of passion and interest is, is an absolute privilege. And I, again, I think that just came through from, from, from all the guests. They were so excited to share, but the thing that they've essentially dedicated their professional life to, um, and it was certainly a privilege for me to, to, to listen to them and, and, and yeah, just get to find out more about that. And thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners. Um, I know it's been an absolute shocker of a year, this. And I know perhaps that you've uh, your commute's been changed, certainly earlier on uh, in the pandemic when perhaps you were teaching remotely and so on and so forth. And whenever that routine changes, perhaps, you know, you don't listen to podcasts in the same way or not as much and so on and so forth. But it's been so nice to hear people who've enjoyed uh, this this series, uh, in particular, the research in action. Uh, let me know if you want a season three. Uh, that could be on the cards next year. At some point, there's certainly plenty of research out there that I'm fascinated by that I want to delve into. Um, I'm going to try if my health allows it to squeeze in one more episode before the end of the academic year and um, I, I won't say what it is now so I'll, just in case it doesn't happen but I'm hopeful of that and then I'm going to take a big summer break get this nose fixed get my health fixed and then fingers crossed be back at some point uh, in the next academic year so thank you so much for listening I really do appreciate it uh, you take care of yourself and bye for now